Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You're listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series, The Gospel Matters. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. We're going to be in this uh, Galatians passage. If you found it, I hope you, I hope you have by now, Galatians chapter 6. If I was going to talk about the musicals, the play world, and I mentioned the name Sound of Music. How many of you would start into song on singing Do, Re, Mi? Or uh, what, what else do we want to talk about? Uh, Edelweiss, so many good classics, right? There's a, when I think about Sound of Music, I think about the way that my family goes to bed each night. Uh, we gather together after each dinner party and our kids line up, and we begin to sing so long, farewell, Alvita saying goodbye. It's, it's an amazing thing. I want to encourage you to come to my house and actually partake and, and witness that. Who in their right mind does that kind of stuff? Uh, the Von Trapps do it, all right? And we all love it. There's one song at the beginning of The Sound of Music that's not quite as familiar as the rest. Here's the lyrics. It goes something like this. I have confidence in sunshine, I have confidence in rain, I have confidence that spring will come again. Besides what you see, I have confidence in me. I have confidence in confidence alone, and and perhaps no other phrase describes the the self-confident culture that we live in today like that. I have confidence in confidence alone. Besides what you see, I have confidence in me. Uh, Before this nun turned into a nanny that we know as nobody solves a problem like Maria, she needed confidence to go to that family. She tries to muster it up in and of herself, and she sings this song. It's not not really well known, but it captures something I want to talk about in Galatians 6 as we look to the text. Before we get there, in in 2003, I want to mention an article that ran in the New York Times, a little bit dated, It was entitled this, Practical Ways to Improve Your Confidence and Why You Should. And this writer gave five reasons, five ways, that you can become a more self-confident person. It's a great list. Number one, be hyper-honest with yourself. If you find yourself kind of shy or hesitant to explain what you do for a living, deal with that. Why is that there? Be hyper self-honest with yourself, and that will build self-confidence. Number two, start working out more. Number three, try new things that make you uncomfortable. Number four, defy your imposter syndrome. Your imposter syndrome is yourself that tells you that you are not qualified for that, or you can't accomplish that task. You have to defy that imposter self. Tell them that that's not truly you. And number five, perhaps my favorite way to build self-confidence is adjust your posture. Everybody stand up real tall this morning. Stand a little taller, sit a little higher, and you will be a more self-confident person. And, And listen, whether it's songs like I Have Confidence in Confidence or these practical methods for developing more self-confidence within yourself, There is no question that our culture today values self-efficacy, self-esteem, and self-confidence. It's kind of this holy triad to becoming a a more confident forest, a more confident mark, 
in our age that we live in. And with all the self-help gurus and the life coaches and all these tips that we have today about becoming a more confident person, you would think that we would be the most confident, the most mentally healthy generation that has ever existed in the, in the world, in the nation up to this time. And actually, the statistics say something drastically different. From 2019 to 2020, calls into mental health facilities have increased by 1,000%, right in the middle of COVID pandemic. The suicide rates today are higher than they have ever been. The prescribed medications that are written for psychological issues regarding mental health are higher than they've ever been. The truth is, is that a self-centered generation has produced more helplessness and hopelessness than we have ever seen before, and it is the epidemic of our time. Christianity is a, is a faith that can give you security. It can give you confidence. It can give you a hope and an identity like nothing else in this world can give you. But the way to that self-confidence is drastically different than what the secular world will tell you. What the Apostle Paul is going to tell us as he summarizes and wraps up this powerful book on Christian liberty and freedom in Galatians is that the way to increase your confidence is, is rather to decrease yourself. The way to become increased in hope is to decrease your self-value, your self-worth, and what the self is apart from Christ. The key is that confidence isn't discovered by trying harder, walking taller, or digging deeper. For the Christian, confidence increases when self-esteem decreases. The most hopeful person is actually the most helpless when it comes to the self. And as a pastor, I have, I have a really deep concern for a lot of the things that I'm hearing in churches and ser sermons today. Whenever I turn on podcasts or whenever I listen to even some of my favorite preachers, I hear a lot of sermons about daring to be a Daniel, about having the confidence and the courage to take a step off the boat and walk on the water. And at the end of the day, all those sermons lead you to a, a priority of self, a self-centeredness and a self-confidence that is almost completely found in you, in your abilities, in your confidence in yourself, when rather we should be talking about self-deprecation, we should be talking about the total sinfulness of ourselves apart from Christ, the need and the desperate need that we all have for the grace of God. There is very little need for a savior if all you truly need is a life coach to feel better about yourself. This morning, the Apostle Paul is gonna show you your need for a savior, your reliance and your dependence upon Christ and upon the cross of Calvary. The great reformer John Calvin was once asked a very simple but powerful and, and profound question. The question was this, what is at the heart of the gospel? And he answered that question with a very beautiful expression and a summary of Christianity. He said this, the gospel is Christ clothed with the gospel. He picked up this phrase from Augustine. It sounds, it's a Latin phrase. Totus Christus, the total Christ, or the whole Christ. 
What he meant by that is when we offer the gospel to the sinner, we offer not the benefits of Christ and not just the blessings of what comes with knowing Christ, but we offer Christ himself. The way to self-confidence, the way to a stronger identity, and the way to a greater hope in who you are as a Christian is not by looking to the self, it's by looking outside of the self to Christ, who's our Savior. If our confidence is wholly rooted in him, we have a true confidence that can stand against anything. But if our, constance, our confidence is rooted in self, in our, abil- our abilities, we will join the ranks with the rest of the mental health culture that is more depressed and more hopeless than we have ever seen before. In Galatians 6, 11 through 18, Paul is gonna close this book with a strong reminder of our confidence lying solely in Christ. Confidence for the Christian is found not by looking down or not by looking in. Confidence for the Christian is found by looking up to someone who can give us an identity that is stronger than anything else. Luther put it this way. Before grace can be given to the sinner, he must be forced to admit the total inadequacy of his own saving power and turn to God in emptiness. Before a man can be raised to the heights, he must be forced to descend to the depths. Before he can be elevated by God, he must first humiliate himself. Before he can be saved, he must first be damned. When you find yourself at an end, you can rightly look for your confidence completely in Christ. That's where Paul ends this letter. Look at verse 11 in Galatians 6. It starts this way. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, Paul himself did not write his, own, his letters. Instead, he had them transcribed. It's only when he gets to the very end of his epistle, this letter, this personal letter to the Galatians, that he picks up the pen for himself. Some people think that Galatians, the body of the letter, was probably written in a lowercase Greek alphabet or, or a lowercase script. By the time Paul picks up the pen, he gets to the end, he ends it with all capital letters. Perhaps that's what's behind this. Maybe Paul just didn't write these letters because of his eye problem, because of the weaknesses that he had in handwriting. We don't really know. Whatever, we, whatever the situation might be, the modern equivalent to what Paul is doing in verse 11 is what we do in our personal letters. We get to the end of them, we sign them, and then right below there, there's a P.S., postscript. And in that P.S. statement, Paul gives us the essential vital ingredients that he was talking about in his letter all the way up to this point. This is an effective summary and an authentication of his message to Galatians. It is the hermeneutical key to everything else. So if you can understand the end, what he says right here in this last paragraph in Galatians chapter 6, it will mesh really well with everything else that came before it. Or, in order to understand everything else in Galatians, you need to understand the end of this letter. And there you will identify what was key in the themes that Paul was emphasizing the most. Verse 11 tells us that the ending is the key to understanding everything else in this letter. Number one in your outline, number one in Galatians. Uh, look down at uh, verse 12. I'm gonna read verse, verse 12 and 13 as we start here. The Apostle Paul, in his own hand, he writes this. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they might 
not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. Many of you know the, the story of Corey Tenboom. I think it was uh, Corey Tenboom and I share a, a familiar, familial heritage. We're both Dutch. It was 1940 when Nazi Germany came to the doorstep of the Netherlands and began to sift out the Jewish refugees who had fled there to get away from them. Hortenboom was part of a, a family where, very successful family, a wealthy family, a Christian family. Her father was a, a watchmaker. And he knew one thing was for certain, that the Jews, after his reading of the Old Testament, the Jews were God's people. And so he never tried to actually convert the Jews through his ministry, but he did give them protection and safety from the invading Nazis that would want to take their lives and, and ship them off to imprisonment camps. And so he did that. It's actually said by the, the end of Corey Tenboom's life is that 800 Jews were probably saved through an underground passageway that was, was secured through their hiding place in their own house. On the backside of, of one of Corey Tenboom's walls, they, they made a, a ventilation space that could hide about four to six people at a time and developed a communication system that would keep them safe when the Nazis were, were coming through town and, and just going through all the, all the buildings and the homes to sift out the Jews. Eventually they were caught. Eventually they took them to the imprisonment camp. It was there. Ten days later, after um, Corey Ten Boom's father was taken, he died in the imprisonment camp. Uh, Corey and her sister Betsy were taken first to a, a political imprisonment camp and then later on, eventually, they would, it would lead them to a women's labor force camp. And the message of Christianity was, was so powerful in their life and in their, the ministry of their family that she was able to smuggle in a Bible and try to convert as many Jews to the faith in that, in that women's slave camp as possible. And that's exactly what she did. Unfortunately, toward, toward the end of, of the Nazi reign, um, Betsy fell sick. Um, she got deathly sick and, and actually died. And actually, before she died, she told, it's a very famous statement that she told Corey Tenboom. It's something to the effect of, there is, no, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. And she hung on to that. And as she was writing her story, now we have it in a, a novel form, non-fictional form, um, called The Hiding Place. There's, there's one statement that stands out about the truth of the gospel and about her confidence in Christ, even in the most dark and hopeless situations. And it goes something like this. She said, and I think this is what, what Paul would say. She said, you never know that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. You never know that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. The true gospel, the Apostle Paul is saying in these verses, is everything that we need for salvation. There is nothing else that we need besides Christ. However, the false teachers, these Judaizers, came in and they tried to convince their listeners, these recent converts to Christianity, that the true gospel was Christ plus something. Salvation was not by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation was Christ plus something. And whenever you add something to Christ, you actually subtract from the truth of the gospel. 
for their right standing before God. The Judaizers said, you need Christ, that's good, but you need something else, and that's even better. And the one thing that they needed more than anything else, the one thing that they taught more than anything else was this, this whole idea of, of circumcision. For their right standing before God, you had to believe Christ, but you also had to be circumcised. And, and even in the law, over and over again, I think we struggle with this because we're not familiar with the passages, but even in the law, you hear this refrain, it doesn't matter what you do on the outside if it's done for the wrong reasons. But God looks upon the heart. It's not the external behaviors that matter, it's the internal heart that matters that's transformed by his grace and his love. I want you to hold your place in, in Galatians. Uh, turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10 is a, a very important chapter in the book of the law. In fact, if you go back and read this, you will see that the Apostle Paul refers to or directly quotes from Deuteronomy 10 many times in his writings. Deuteronomy chapter 10, skip down to verse 12. This is in summary statement fashion. Moses says, through God to Israel. And now Israel, what does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all people, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, not the foreskin of your body. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. The whole time behind this law and behind the, the covenant of circumcision, you can turn back to Galatians 6, it was not about the external ritual at all. It was about the internal reality of the truth of the gospel. It was about an uncovering, not of the foreskin, but an uncovering of the heart before God, showing submission and faith and, and love to him. Romans chapter two, verse 28 and uh, 29 basically say about, about the same, same thing. I've got it up here somewhere. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from man, but from God. As Paul closes this very important letter to the Galatians, he talks about something that is vitally important, which is the gospel upon the heart. It's a gospel that transforms the inside, not just the outside. And the principle behind this text is simply this. Christianity is a matter of inward change, not external observance. Christianity is a matter of inward change, not external observance. And Paul is saying that circumcision is not the whole Christ. External observations are not the total Christ. The total Christ is Christ himself. and only comes through him based on faith. 
You never know that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. If the Apostle Paul were speaking today to us, he probably wouldn't talk about circumcision, but he would say this. Everything you need for salvation is found solely in the person of Jesus, plus nothing, nothing else. Complete dependence on him in faith. Number two, the message of the cross is a message of death before it's a message of life. The message of the cross is a message of death before it's a message of life. Look down at verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. A strong theology that helps me understand the depths of the gospel at a very personal level is, is Martin Luther's theology of the cross. And his theology of the cross was, was a dialectic. It was a paradox. He dealt with the tension of, of God hidden on the cross, and yet at the very same time, that was where he was most clearly revealed. And the great paradox comes across as this. Before God can build something new, he must destroy something that is very old. And the power and the message and the transformation of the gospel, before he builds something new in our hearts, he must destroy something that is very old. Before God can make a new creation, he must dismantle and annihilate the old one. And, and the question is, that, is, how does God do this? What is the process that he breaks us down that we might look up from the bottom of the pit and trust him in him alone? Luther identified a three-prong attack that will lead people to a destruction of self. And here they are. He said, number one, death, the devil, and hell. The three things, those three things combine for an attack on man that will assault him until there is absolutely nothing left. They reduce man to a state of doubt and despair. And even though Satan and hell are intimately associated with this assault on man, Luther would say in the theology of the cross that God is not passive in this process, but he's actually active in it. And he will use suffering even in the life of a believer to bring a person back to him and show him his true grace and his dependence on him. Luther in the theology of the cross said that before man can be justified, he must be utterly humiliated. And it is God, God who humiliates and justifies so while the world wants us to look inside at our self-confidence and our abilities in self, Luther would say, if you take a true look at yourself, you will find nothing but doubt and despair. And behind all of that, behind living in a fallen world and falling on your face over and over again, is God writing a story of redemption over our hearts and over those who would trust him. While the world wants us to look inside and find something good, Luther would say, if you look inside, you will only find something that is bad and that is apart from Christ. And so he continues, and he says this, through the experience, what he means by that is suffering, the Greek word or the German word is infectum. Through the experience of suffering, of delicious despair, the sinner learns to trust only in God, and thus he comes to be justified. Insofar as suffering takes everything away from us, it leaves us nothing but God, and it cannot take a God away from us. It actually brings us closer to him. What we learn from, 
from Luther and, and his theology of the cross is the same thing that we learn from the Apostle Paul, and it is drastically different than what the world will tell you and what the false teachers will try to convince the Galatian believers of. When the world sees the cross, they see a cruel instrument, instrument of destruction and punishment. This was a, a penalty for the worst kind of criminal. It was reserved for crucifixion on a cross. When the world looks at the cross, they see shame, they see hopelessness, and they see death and nothing else. When Paul looks at the cross, however, he sees something that's entirely different. He sees something beautiful. He sees something honorable in the sight of God. At the very center of Christianity, is, it's not the, the tragedy and, the, and the, the goriness of the cross. The very center of Christianity is the beauty and the glory of the cross. What I want you to notice is that the, the centrality of the cross is, is not just something that is for us coming to faith, but it's also something for us living by faith. The gospel is not something that we learn and, and we reach some kind of uh, mark of maturity and then now we're past it. The gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ is, is just as powerful for our Christian life as it was for us coming to faith and being redeemed. And so in verses 14 through 16, what Paul does is he moves from past to present to future. Verse 14 focuses on the past and what the power of the cross did for us when we trusted him. Verse 15 is on the present, and verse 16 is actually on the future. Verse 14, the cross's work is best seen in the past tense. The Apostle Paul says that the world has been crucified to him and him to the world. And, and when he uses that word world, he is, is probably talking about the epitome of unredeemed creation, that everything outside of Christ has suffered and died in the life of Paul and should suffer and die in the life of a believer. He no longer lives for that which is worldly. He no longer finds his significance and his importance in that which is temporary. The world is dying and decaying. Paul looks to the kingdom of God which is eternal and which will remain. While verse 14 emphasizes a past death, verse 15 emphasizes a present result. What matters most in the present the thing that is the most valuable, the thing that is, that is the most significant for a Christian is not the things that we do in the flesh, but what God does in his power. What matters the most is that we are a new creation in Christ. Down at verse 15, neither circumcision counts for anything or uncircumcision, but a new creation. The cross wasn't just for the benefit of Christ. The cross was for the benefit of believers as well. Just as Jesus was raised to newness of life, so we too become a new creation in Christ by looking to and hanging on to and relying on the cross. We are not called to the cross like it's some kind of a mystical puberty. All of a sudden, we advance past childhood and into adulthood now. Circumcision counts for nothing in light of the cross. All our efforts for self-salvation count as nothing in light of the cross. All of our good deeds apart from Jesus are nothing in filthy rags apart from the cross of Jesus. In order for any Christian to progress in the spiritual life, we must continually and regularly force ourselves back to the foot of the cross and back to Calvary. We must continue to kill the, the self-confidence inside of ourselves that wants to trust in ourselves rather than trusting in the power of Jesus and the power of the cross. 
we never know that Christ is all we need until Christ is all we have. The cross is a message of death before it's a message of life. And the marks of suffering, number three, matter more than the marks of circumcision. The marks of suffering as a Christian matter more than the marks of circumcision. Look at verse 17. From now on, let no one cause you trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. You can, you can hardly miss Paul's point as he closes this letter. He talks about scars. The scar of circumcision is nothing compared to the scar of persecution. The scars left from your walk with Jesus in this present tense are everything compared to any mark that, would, that you would look to to give you, you salvation in the first place. For Paul, suffering was the mark of ownership. His scars as a persecuted Christian reminded him that he was not his own. He was bought with a price. It reminded him of of his master and his Lord Jesus, who had the authority over him for everything in life. His suffering was also a mark of partnership. Paul mysteriously participated in the sufferings of Christ, and he perfected that which was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. If you go back and and read those Hebrews verses. For, For the Apostle Paul, the marks of persecution were much greater, deeper, and more significant than any marks of circumcision that held no value, salvific value, for his salvation in Christ. As we, uh, as we close, it's, it's hard to put the message of Galatians and just try to summarize this in just the short amount of time that we've had this morning. I'm going to do it by um, relying on a, on a book by Francis Schaeffer. You guys know the great apologist, Francis Schaeffer? Dane Ortland uh, wrote an article about his, his life, his ministry, and, and he wrote one book that's called True Spirituality. At the beginning of the book, he shared a little bit about his testimony in his life. Before um, Francis Schaeffer trusted Christ, he was an agnostic. He didn't trust Christ until late in life. And after he trusted Christ, he was actually a a pastor for about a decade, about 10 years in the States. Francis Schaeffer did pastoral ministry. After that, he moved to Europe where he he continued ministry in a variety of different ways and and really built on his apologetics and wrote many books. In his book, uh, True Spirituality, he talks about a struggle that he had. When he became a Christian, he found it more and more difficult to see the reality of Christianity in the life of other believers. Uh, He looked out at the church and and he saw something that was lacking there. And so he he came to a point in his ministry where he had to, and he told his wife this, he said, I need to go back and relearn all the foundational truths of the things that I believe in order to get me through this downtime in my spiritual life. And when he did that, he came back with, with three things, three elements that he held to as, as most important as he went through a period of reformation and spiritual rejuvenation. Uh, what he said was this, he said, I searched through what the Bible said concerning the reality of a Christian. And gradually I saw that the problem was that with all the teaching I had received after I was a Christian, I heard little about what the Bible said about the meaning of the finished work of Christ. 
for our present lives. Gradually, the sun came out, and the song came with it. In order for Francis Schaeffer to get to a, a healthier spot in his Christian walk, he had to go back to the finished work of Christ on the cross. And these are the three things that he came up with as we close. He said this. Number one, right doctrine matters. Right doctrine 100% matters for the Christians. Schaefer spent his early Christian years working um, his historical Christian position. He wanted to discover that which was orthodox. We would say that he wanted to know what he believed and why he believed it. And he was convinced that the truth of Christianity, the orthodox truth of of what Christianity taught was life-changing. And so after going back and rethinking the reasons of, of him personally trusting Christ, he identified a lack of vibrancy as due to something other than his theology. The problem was not his doctrine, it was something else. It was, it was an absence of reality. It was an absence of the reality of the truth of Christ at work in the presence of the community. His struggle was, was not what he knew from his intellect and his doctrine. His struggle was that which he didn't see in the application of his doctrine. But before he could come back and, and be restored in his relationship with Jesus, he came to this conclusion. Right doctrine must be there. It has to be there. The truth of the gospel must stand firm first and foremost. The second thing he, he came to, to his conclusion was this. Right doctrine and right thinking leads to beautiful living. Right doctrine and right thinking leads to beautiful living. And he said this, to lack grace in our lives is to deny grace in our theology. He said, we can unsay with our lives in the living room what we have said with our lips in the pew, but the doctrine of grace should generate a culture of grace and a community of grace. And if it doesn't, it's not right doctrine in the first place. Let me just read that again. The doctrine of grace should generate a culture of grace and a community of grace, and if it doesn't, it's not right doctrine in the first place. Francis Schaeffer was obsessed with doctrine and the orthodox teaching of the faith, but he was just obsessed with the practical application of that doctrine, making sure that the faith was not just something that we would say with our lips, but something that we would live in our living rooms, in our daily lives, and in our relationships. And his third and his final conclusion was this. The crucial doctrine that leads to beautiful living is the doctrine of the gospel. The true and the crucial doctrine that leads to beautiful living is the doctrine of the gospel. He said, the gospel is a home. It's not a hotel. We pass through a hotel. We stay there temporary. We reside in a home. We make our living there. We raise our kids there. We deepen our family ties there. And it was when he, this aspect washed over him, it was when his heart came to dwell on the finished work of Christ that his soul began to live again. And he could continue with a restored, rejuvenated vibrancy for pastoral ministry and for, uh, for the ministry of an apologetic. Schaefer came to discover many years after his conversion that the finished work of Christ mattered. And it mattered tremendously 
for his present life, not just for this past moment of conversion, not just for his future moment when the world would stand behind him and glory would stand in front of him. The finished work of Christ on the cross mattered for today. It ushered him into a gracious lifestyle, not just a gracious language. It transformed his relationships, not just Sunday mornings, but every morning and every day throughout the week. The gospel of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross absolutely changed everything about him. And when his life got out of whack, here's what he did. He went back to the foot of the cross and back to the gospel. And if that's what Francis Schaeffer did in his ministry, and that's what the Apostle Paul suggested for his ministry, that's what we at TBC, as brothers and sisters in Christ, need to do for our daily lives in our ministry. That when our life gets out of whack, when our relationships are not in line with the truth of the gospel, we go back to the foot of the cross. That we will never mature beyond the truth of the cross. That we will always be stationed, founded in, and go back over and over again to Calvary. That there might, as John prayed, be less of us and more of him. At the end of the day, the Apostle Paul doesn't care who baptized you. He doesn't care what church you go to. He cares about this. I want to preach Christ and him crucified. In that is all the self-confidence that we could ever need. When we finally look away from ourselves and to the cross of Jesus, we find a hope and a confidence that can stand against anything. The book of Galatians wants you to remember this. The gospel matters. It matters for everything. Everything that you do in life will always go back to the truth of the gospel. It's there we start, it's there we finish, and it's there that we are restored. Let's pray as we close. Father in heaven, um, again, we thank you and, and just love you uh, for what you've given to us in your word. We thank you for the sufficiency of Christ's death for us on the cross. We thank you that our salvation is wholly dependent upon what he has done for us, not what we do for you. I thank you that in simple faith in trusting you, when we depend upon you for salvation, you give us eternal life as a gift. It cannot be earned. We thank you for the example of a, of a church and of, a, of an apostle that is so concerned about the truth of the gospel, not only for coming to faith, but for living by faith. And we pray that as a church at TBC, and each one of us individually, all of our lives will never, never come to a full and complete understanding of the depth and the mystery of the cross, that we will spend the rest of our lives day by day, step by step, understanding the richness of Calvary, the greatness and the truth and the power of the resurrection on our behalf. We thank you that you are a, a God of freedom we thank you that the gospel is the gospel of grace. We pray that we would add nothing to it, but we would preserve the foundational orthodox teaching of Christ and Christ crucified for everything. And it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. Amen.